How much, how much do you laugh every time you see the meme of your dad celebrating the scoreless end to regulation in that game against Wake Forest back in 2014? <laughs> I'm like, every time I see it, I'm like, come on, man. Like, can we just move on? <laughs> uh, Andy Staples loves using that one. I've seen him use that one all the time as well with uh, on, on Twitter. But I laugh because there's that one, and then there's the one of him dancing in the locker room after the Virginia game. But the one yep. from the Wake Forest game, that's like universal because that gets used with literally like every sport and sometimes outside of sports <laughs> as well, that one. So it's one of those, it is what it is. I get it, but every time I see it, I laugh, but then I shake my head. I'm like, man, at some point we can maybe move on or get, a different, or get, a, get something <laughs> new to use. <laughs> Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, big pod today. We've got South Carolina coach Shane Beamer joining the show. Uh, I had heard such great things about him the last few months, and all of them were confirmed. I probably could have gone like two hours with him pretty easily, um, but you know, obviously he's a pretty busy man. But stick around for that great, great interview. I've also got a few things I want to get to on second-year coaches in the SEC, what history really tells us about making that year two jump, and then I have something on Derek Stingley's redo season, and then we've also got figuring it out to close things out. We're talking about promotions and raises today, a little bit of like corporate America, workplace type stuff as an adult. I want to start though by apologizing because I brought a little bit too much negative energy last week complaining about my Twitter woes. The problem, and we were talking about this off air, the problem is still a problem, Will. Um, I might just have to go full burner account, get 10 different Malik Wills for Heisman usernames, see what we can do there. Who's your so, daddy, 286? Yeah, I think that's taken. I think that's taken. I think every single Who's Your Daddy account is probably um, probably out there. Even did a little bit of a uh, little bit of early <laughs> research on the handles potentially related to my name, and a lot of them surprisingly are taken. So I'm gonna get off this call and do the old "What happened to the Washington football team?" and just take like all versions of your name on Twitter, and they'll just ransom them. It's <laughs> a good idea. I like that. I want to start with some positive energy, though, because the opening weekend slate for ESPN slash ABC is so good. So, so good. If you haven't seen it yet, Saturday, Bama, Miami, that's in Atlanta at 3.30. Georgia, Clemson, that's in Charlotte at 7.30. And then you got a little Sunday night, Notre Dame, Florida State, and then Monday night on Labor Day, we've got Louisville, Old Miss. I'm going to do my best to try and make it to Atlanta for that weekend. But I've still got some things to figure out, so I don't want to put anything into motion just yet with that. But I'd love to be able to get there, especially after not going to any games last year. There's nothing I would love to do more than to be able to get to two games opening weekend. We'll kind of wait and see. I realize those games have like six of the top 12 to 15 quarterbacks in college football. I haven't done those rankings just yet, but that kind of depends on how optimistic we are about Bryce Young. If you appreciate the underrated Malik Cunningham, Louisville quarterback, I realize though why I'm so fired up about opening weekend because yeah, obviously like always fired up about opening weekend, but this is going to be my seventh season with the company and basically 2018 and 2019 are the only times that I've had a normal opening weekend of college football. 2015 was my first ever game day 
with this company and I was running the website Saturday Tradition by myself and I think I had something like 32 articles that day. 2016, I got married that weekend. Again, as I've said on this pod before, our wedding was planned way before I ever got this job and that was a priority. 2017, we moved that weekend. I don't know why we picked that weekend to move, but we did. That's on me. 2018, 2019, normal. And then last year, it was pretty much anything but normal. I've been saying this for a while, but non-conference play with full stadiums is going to feel like college football nirvana. So on that note, because we're bringing positive energy today, Will, have you already mapped out which games you're planning on being at, or is that more of like a midsummer tradition for you? Man, I still got to come to terms with... Uh, so let me give you an example before I say this. So we bought Green Day tickets. So there's this Hell and Mega Tour that's Green Day, Fallout Boy, Weezer, right? We bought these back in 2019. And I got like a Ticketmaster alert the other day that was like, yo, this is at the end of July. It's still happening. I was like, what? <laughs> and so we just have these awesome tickets to the Brave Stadium. Things are coming back. And so it's like mentally, it's, it's like I'm just now processing that I even have the ability to do that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I think that... Um, you know, I've, I've gotten to an LSU home game literally since I was about six every season except for last season. So I'm really fired up. You know, we were talking about the one in Atlanta, um, but, you know, if things go according to plan for uh, Alabama, things are going to be over in the first quarter, so I don't really want to spend, you know, buku bucks on that as a non-fan. Um, but I think that, you know, there's going to be some great opportunities, and I'll tell you what, I'll never take college football for granted again. I'm going to try to get out there. It's, it's so worth it, and I, I really do want to prioritize that as much as possible. Obviously, other factors kind of come into that, what games we're able to get to and not, but man, I want to be in person as much as possible this year. And Labor Day weekend, it just cannot get here soon enough. So fired up to be able to see that. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. You know, as I said last week, what's a really, really good thing when you're locked out of Twitter is to be able to have the Saturday Football Newsletter. All you gotta do is go to your browser, you type in saturday.football, that's it. You put in your email address and boom, just like that, it's twice a week during the summer that you're gonna get all of these headlines sent to your email. You're gonna be able to read up on everything going on in the sport. You're gonna be an informed college sports fan. And there's a lot going on right now. And there's a lot of things that we need perspective on. TJ Finley is on the move potentially. I think he's gonna wait till after that June 3rd day that's coming up. And we're gonna, we've already had a lot of different takes on that. That's the type of thing that you can easily miss over the course of the day. But you're like, oh, hey, Saturday football newsletter, boom, right there. There are a lot of things like that that I promise if you're not trying to stay up to date they can slip through the cracks in college sports right now so stay informed subscribe to the Saturday football newsletter as I always say it's such a great resource and if you're not big on social media or if you're just kind of mad at social media right now and mad at Twitter specifically it's a really good thing to go over and get the Saturday football newsletter saturday.football punch it into your browser get it sent to your email I promise you will not regret it I'm just imagining you sitting there in like a leather recliner with like a printed out version of the Saturday football newsletter <laughs> just angrily thumbing through it like ah ah no Twitter for me. Thanks. I don't need it. I've always been a big ink on the fingers guy. No, not really. I, I gave that up probably like, uh, yeah, like seven years ago. We made the transition out of the newspaper game, but cannot recommend it enough. Go do that right now. Will, I find myself especially interested in the second-year coaches in the SEC this year. There's four of them. In case you forgot, we got Leach, we got Pittman, Kiffin, Drinkowitz. That's nearly a third of the league. For a while, I have heard 
hey, you know, the second year, it's really important. Look at what Saban did. Look at what Urban did. Look at what Kirby did. And for a while, I've been hearing, if you can't figure it out in year two, you're probably not going to be the guy long term. And I've always sort of raised my eyebrow to that. Like, is that really the case? And I've never really gone back and dug through it. So I decided to do that. I've always kind of wondered, maybe that's just a little bit of hindsight thing that people like to use when it doesn't work out. And it's pretty easy to do with someone like Chad Morris or even my guy, Joe Moorhead, both of whom were obviously fired before getting that third season. It was two years ago when I spent the day with Moorhead at SEC Media Days. Like from the moment he stepped out of the van at the hotel to the moment that he got back in there and they flew off the plane, I was with Joe. He took three bathroom breaks that day, I think. And other than that, I was at his side all day. And I think even one time I, I went to the bathroom at the same time as him. So like basically two instances. I went into the day, you know, separate, separate, you know, urinals. <laughs> We're all good. We're all good. Gave him his space. We had, Will, you're laughing at me. There was plenty of space. Don't worry. I went into that day thinking, I wonder how different he's going to be going into year two. Because his confidence and his bravado was kind of what stood out in year one. By the time I left that day, I remember being so sold on his year two approach. He talked about getting over his skis with the, the mantle on the Heisman deal, the know your ring size comment. He talked about how his first Egg Bowl really brought out a different side in him. And he, he just got too caught up in the bravado of the SEC. And he even, you know, he changed his diet and he's doing all the intermittent fasting stuff. He lost like 60 pounds because he was eating too much barbecue before. And he was a very different person in that year too. And I just remember thinking, man, this guy took a long look in the mirror and really self-evaluated a lot. He didn't just dig his cleats in further and say, this is gonna work. He really said, this is a good time to be self-critical. And in the end, it didn't matter. He regressed in year two. The Willie Gay punch of Garrett Schrader was the last straw and then they pushed him out after that. I, of course, was stunned that they fired him, but plenty of people and a lot of Mississippi State fans were, you know, clapped back at me and said, look, if you don't make that year two step, you're not going to be the guy. A couple of things on that. What I didn't realize at the time when I said this, and I'm defending Moorhead a lot, and obviously because I like the guy and I've liked him for a long time, among year two SEC head coaches in the 21st century, Moorhead's minus two win total in year two tied for the biggest regression among SEC head coaches in the 21st century. Kevin Sumlin, Rich Brooks, they're the other two coaches that were at minus two in terms of year two win total. That's ironic considering that Sumlin got that massive new deal in the regular season finale of his second year. When we did that A&M Mizzou game in 2013 for it just meant more, they said on the broadcast how huge it was for A&M to keep Sumlin, who some expected to leave for the NFL. Sumlin and Brooks got six and seven years respectively. That shows the point that I found out looking back on this. The year two improvement barometer, it's a bit of a myth. Will, I'm gonna read you a list of SEC coaches in the 21st century, and I want you to tell me the common thread between them. Lou Holtz, Gene Chizik, Nick Saban, Guy Morris, Mark Rick, Kirby Smart, Brett Bielema, Urban Meyer, Tommy Tuberville, Dan Mullen, Will Muschamp, Will Muschamp, James Franklin, Bobby Petrino, Barry Odom, Mark Stoops. Any guesses at all what that list represents? Wow, that is an incredibly random list other than Will Muschamp. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go, they each improved by like three wins from year two to from year two to three? Year one to year two. 
you're one to your two. That's exactly it. That is exactly it. No $10 on the line for you there, but kudos to you because that is the exact thing. Those are the SEC coaches who improved by three or more games in year two. And I actually read that list off in order too. At the top of that list is Lou Holtz and my guy Chiswick. Sure, that, that list had some big, big names. Saban, Smart, Urban, Rick, Mullen. But think of some of the others on that list. Muschamp twice. Bielema, Barry Odom. Odom, Chizik, and Florida Muschamp were all fired after year four. 40% of the 15 SEC head coaches with that plus three win total in year two were either fired or they left for another job by the end of year four. Guy Morris, James Franklin, they were the other ones who left. The SEC is actually the perfect conference to do this exercise with because most other conferences have coaches leaving for other Power 5 jobs, and it's kind of hard to be like, oh, well, they're gone after year four. Well, they were going to another Power 5 job. In the last decade, Franklin is the only one to leave the SEC to take another Power 5 job. That excludes someone like someone who got fired at AM and then hired at Arizona. But back to the point. Of the 15 coaches with the plus three win improvement in year two, only five of them got to year eight. That's wild, in my opinion. In the SEC, the coaches with a plus three win improvement in year two were more likely to be gone at the end of year four than they were to reach year eight. Will, looking at those 15 coaches who had a plus three win improvement in year two, Take a guess. So this is 15 coaches. How many of those guys do you think then regressed by at least two games in year three? Man, so I, knowing what I know now, like you said, there are names at the top that I know had successful careers after that, but there are some towards the bottom. I'm going to say about seven or eight. Gosh, you are on fire today. You're on the money today. Look at you. Eight. That's more than half. Chiswick, Urban. Kirby, Rick, Tuberville, Muschamp at Florida, Muschamp at South Carolina, Mullen at MSU. The good news for the majority of those guys, you know, Meyer, Smart, Rick, Tuberville, and Mullen, they all eventually got back to an elite level. That's what people like to think year two is all about. What's your upside? Yeah, I know, you're smiling because you're like, Mullen didn't really get back to an elite level. Mullen still had at least a 2014, and you could argue that Tuberville and some of the success that he had later on at Auburn, yeah, it ended weird, but they still were able to get that back as opposed to someone like Chiswick, obviously, Muschamp in Florida, Muschamp in South Carolina. That's my point. Well, so the, that's what people like to look at. What I think is interesting is this next list. So I've got another list for you. These are the SEC coaches who either won the same or fewer games in year two. Chad Morris, Les Miles. Bobby Johnson, Houston Nutt. Sylvester Croom, Ron Zook. Jimbo Fisher, Jim McElwain. Joker Phillips, David Cutcliffe. Kevin Sumlin, Joe Moorhead, Rich Brooks. I think you hear, so you hear a few obvious flameouts on, on that list, and you're like, see, year two improvement, really great barometer. You look at Morris, Zook, Phillips, Moorhead. But here's where I'll push back on that. Let's start with McElwain. We know how it ended with McElwain. We also know that by the end of year two, he was celebrating two consecutive division titles, and even though he clearly wasn't on the level of Alabama, Florida State, his on-field stuff wasn't totally ominous yet. Yes, the whole Treon Harris over Will Greer thing, that, that was rough. But at the same time, it's like, hey, you know, he kind of made Austin Appleby work. Nobody in America was saying, Jim McElwain, hot seat going into year three. 
But then there's, of course, the bizarre Outback Bowl comments, the <laughs> naked shark photo that he handled horribly, credit card nine, fake death threats, adios. I already told you the part about Sumlin and why we can use that logic in hindsight, but after year two, it's still believed that he's the guy. Les Miles should almost be exempt from this list because he finished number three in the AP poll in year two, even though he had the exact same amount of wins. He didn't win a division title in year two like he did in year one, but nobody was like, well, he didn't win a title in year two, so he's destined to fail. You could also look at guys like Cutcliffe and Brooks, who actually lifted historical doormats once they had enough time to be able to rebuild. Even though those guys weren't all-time great coaches, uh, their year two regression wasn't some ominous sign. That brings me to Jimbo and why I think this whole year two improvement thing gets blown out of proportion a little bit. Of the 35 SEC head coaches who got a year two in the 21st century, Jimbo is one of seven who had fewer wins in year two than he did in year one. I didn't really realize how uncommon that was. Like that's only 20%, that's not a lot. Like you are expected to have more wins in year two as a head coach in the SEC. I admittedly looked a lot at that and thought, see, this is why he's never going to be able to get it to the big time at AM. And this isn't a good sign that he took a step back in year two. And now things are just so differently after the year three that he had. Am I sitting here being like, well, you know, Jimbo, he did have that regression in year two, so there's no way that he's ever gonna win at AM. That's not the case at all. That, that, that's just ludicrous. That's, that'd be an outdated take for me to come here and say. Every path to success is different. Because I, I know the other point that people like to say, oh, the great ones, they have it figured out by year three. Do they? Want to know how many AP top 25 finishes Dabo had in his first three seasons at Clemson? Will, do you know that answer? Oh man, they were. Clemson thing was a thing back then, so it took them a minute. He had none. Yeah. Hadn't had an AP top 25 finish yet. And I know he inherited a different situation, but still... Didn't exactly have it figured out. It, it took a while. Saban was 26 and 12 overall and 15 and nine in his first three years at LSU. It was obviously a much different story at Bama. I think we use the Bama Saban stuff a little bit too much to determine this year two narrative. And none of the SEC's year two coaches are in that stratosphere yet as we talk about them entering 2021. But all of them had between three and five wins last year. They're now subtracting two SEC games and adding four non-conference games, three of which will be against non-Power 5 teams. And inevitably, at least two of them, probably, maybe even three, are going to join that plus three win improvement group in year two. Some will use that as the basis for why a certain coach is the right guy for the future. And I'm admitting I'm probably going to fall into that trap to a certain degree. And I'm going to say, look, I like things that Pittman's doing here. I like things that Leach is doing there and see the air raids finally working and blah, blah, blah. But we often expect these things to be so linear. And what I'm trying to remind myself is that year two, it's just not some fork in the road season for these coaches. There are so, so many decisions after year two that'll determine if they're going to be around for a year seven or a year eight. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be pumped if your team makes a nice jump with your year two head coach. That's way better than the alternative, as I learned with the Moorhead stuff. Just take it with a grain of salt and remember that once upon a time, Bielema and Muschamp were all about that year two bump. Well, hey, you know, make that twice for, for Muschamp. One of my favorite things to do this time last year was watch Derek Stingley highlights. There were a ton of them. 
Since I had been doing this job, I hadn't seen a corner impact the game like him. This offseason, though, I find myself doing the exact opposite. I watched clips of Stingley struggling in 2020. I, I sought those out. Not because I'm rooting against the kid or because I'm doing the whole, like, let's build them up to tear them down thing, but because I genuinely wanted to see if it was just my expectations being too high and maybe I was being a little bit, a little bit critical of him given what we thought he was going to be. In short, looking back and what I looked back on a lot more this past week, it confirmed that it was a lost year for Stingley. I went back and I watched the Mizzou game. I know he had the ankle thing and that came out afterwards. It was still a mess. There were a couple instances with just horrendous angles being taken on tackles. There were other times where he looked totally lost in coverage. The 69-yard chance looper catch that ended up being the, the go-ahead touchdown for Mizzou at the end of that game. Um, it le led to the go-ahead touchdown where Stingley looks like he's playing free safety with a 20-yard cushion. He has the sideline to work with, but it's like one fake and it's one bad arm tackle attempt and that's all she wrote. Murph Baldwin. Former SDS employee, that, that name might be a little bit familiar for people listening to this. If it is, you should go go subscribe to his YouTube channel, uh, Top Villain. Really, really good stuff, good film breakdowns. He, is, he likes to be able to kind of go in a lot of different directions, but he, he did an entire breakdown of the reps that Stingley had against Devontae Smith in the 2020 game. So this past season, not looking 2019, where Stingley's looking over to the sideline, whatever. But just the 2020 game was what he focused on for this specific, this specific video. What he showed was that they could either be in man coverage or zone with man principles. And Stingley was often in these weird spots. The in-breaking routes were the thing that gave him problems in 2019. And they gave him problems again in 2020. There were instances in which Stingley's lined up in zone and there's other guys lined up in man. And the coverage is just weird. Like even Murph is saying he has no idea what coverage they're in. And I talked to someone who confirmed that. And I basically asked this person, give me one to 10, a scale of one to 10, how much blame Pelini deserved for Stingley's struggles. And for what it's worth, the, the, the person I spoke to, he's a big Pelini guy. And he's like, yeah, it's a 10. It's a 10. Turn on the film and you'll scratch your head. Teams would go in motion and the secondary would just have no idea what in the world they were doing. Like they had never seen motion before. Matt Canada's offense against the 2020 LSU defense would have worked out just great. <laughs> Mizzou and Bama did a ton of that. And it just totally perplexed them. I don't think that you can totally put 100% of everything on Pelini. I don't think that you can put 100% of everything that we saw from Stingley on the pandemic either. And I also don't think it's entirely fair to just judge him based on what he did against Devontae Smith, who, again, all pro receiver playing college football. But Devontae, what he's been able to do is he magnifies some of those mistakes in such a unique way. There's one of these plays where Stingley disguises zone and he just gets all turned around. He's overprotecting the inside route. They've got him playing this like slot corner spot and Smith catches it with space. And there's like a 60 yard gain because Stingley can't make the tackle afterwards, which is partially because Stingley's just out of position to begin with. Stingley's best play of that game, Murph pointed this out on his video, it's when Bryce Young comes into the game and Bryce Young just totally stares down Devontae on this play and Stingley's sitting back in some like weird zone man hybrid. And just, again, one of those instances where you just have no idea what Pelini just drew doing. a cat on the field and was like, here's your zone, buddy. <laughs> Sit on the snoot. Everybody's, it's, it's impossible to figure out. And Stingley's eyes are just locked in on the quarterback the whole time. It's almost like, 
I'm not gonna listen to this coordinator over here in my ear. I'm just gonna look at the quarterback and see if I can figure this thing out for myself. And he makes a nice break on the ball, but he can't quite pick it off. And it was a forced throw by Young that, as Murph says, he should have never made. But that's part of this with Stingley. I was never, ever going to base his 2020 season on interceptions. I said that going in. I'm like, I, I'm, I know these numbers are going to be way down because he had six as a true freshman. And a year ago, I wrote this piece on Stingley where I said, here's what he needs to do to become the GOAT of SEC defensive backs. As great as guys like Champ Bailey, Antonio Langham, Lawrence Wright, as great as those guys were, I kind of give the benefit of the doubt to the 21st century guys because of how much is asked of defensive backs in this passing era, more accurate quarterbacks, more speed on the outside, more receivers to cover, all those different things. But as for Stingley becoming the GOAT, I, I pointed to him continuing some of the PFF numbers from 2019. He saw the second most targets of anyone in America, and he was the highest graded defender in single coverage. He allowed a catch rate of 38.3%. Really, really good. There were four things that he could reach that I thought would definitely make Stingley the unanimous GOAT of SEC defensive backs. And it would be accomplishing all four of those things. So win the Jim Thorpe Award as the best defensive back in America, win the Bednarik Award as the best defensive player in college football, earn two more first-team All-SEC and two more first-team All-America nods. That's actually all still on the table in a weird way. Um, the AFCA gave Stingley one of these strange first-team All-America honors. LSU made a pretty big deal about that. Uh, Whatever. He can now actually be the second three-time All-American in school history. Will, do you know the other one? The other three-time first-team All-American at LSU. Tommy, also a defensive back. Tommy Castanova. You are. Look at you, man. Look at you. You're on a roll today. I love it. Stingley still got first-team All-SEC love from coaches as well. The grades, though, they just do not reflect that. PFF had him number 15 among SEC cornerbacks in coverage. That was his grade. His overall grade went from 91.7 in 2019, where he's the most valuable non-quarterback that PFF had ever graded, and his grade went all the way down to 72.1. He played in seven games, and two of them, as I said, Mizzou and Bama, were really, really bad. Try and find some Stingley highlights from 2020. The one that I found on YouTube, it's two minutes and 16 seconds. And I'm not kidding when I say this. The first 55 seconds of this 2020 Stingley highlight clip, 40% of it was a 22-yard punt return against Vandy and an overthrown deep ball from Bo Nix. That, out. by the way, yeah, Stingley like dove for this ball and he didn't catch it and there was double coverage. It was one of these classic Bo Nix plays where he did his, screw it, I'm throwing to Seth Williams in double coverage. And it was four yards too deep. And Stingley, to his credit, ran stride for stride with Seth Williams. But, you know, it's just, it's kind of a basic play. It was a very thin highlight package. Thank goodness for Vandy special teams, Bo Nix, and Seth Williams. Otherwise, I think the guy who's, who made the video, he's probably like, eh, let's just punt on this. We don't need to do a Stingley 2020 highlight video clip. It's just nothing that he did last year holds a candle to anything that we saw in those moments of brilliance in 2019. Those game-changing plays just weren't there. By now, you know this. And I think there were a lot of things that contributed to that. The Pelini thing, huge part of it. Pelini being able to look at that situation and not say, hey, we're going to simplify this because we have Derek Stingley and Eli Ricks. And instead, he's like, 
how can I make sure our secondary never has any idea what we're doing and even Mizzou gashes us repeatedly? That's a problem. That's a big problem. And so much of that is on Pelini. I was also told that there were some personal things going on with Stingley. I don't necessarily want to dig into all that, but if you're a cornerback trying to play at this high level, I got to think that if you got stuff in the back of your mind on top of not knowing what coverage you're in at any given point, that that's really, really difficult and it kind of slows down some of the physical stuff. The last minute absence before the opener, that was really, really weird. Then the Mizzou game, of course, they say he's got the sprained ankle. He just didn't look right. And that's what led to Herb Street calling him out. And Herbie's like, you know, Stingley doesn't look like he has any interest in tackling. And that's trickling down to the rest of the team. Derek Stingley Sr., not really a fan of that. Even though a month earlier, Herb Street picked him to win the Heisman. That's the kind of stuff that we were talking about with him last year. And it was totally justified. Stingley just didn't look right physically and mentally all year. There wasn't a single moment of 2020 where you thought, oh my goodness. The 2019 guy who always bounced back after he made those mistakes, he wasn't there. I saw half of Stingley's 2019 interceptions in person. And again, interceptions, they're not everything. They're not everything. Go, go back though to the SEC Championship in 2019. Please. The first interception. Yes, Will, I know. I'm preaching the choir here. <laughs> First interception he made, it's it's stunning. George was down 17 to three, two minutes left in the first half. Stingley's lined up, he's lined up in press coverage on the outside. Jake Fromm looks to the left right before the play. And I don't know what's going on in Jake Fromm's mind, but it's almost like, yeah, this is gonna be my guy. I've done this route a million times. We're gonna make it work. He's got Tyler Simmons, so it's not exactly a go up and get it type of guy, but still, Stingley's on him in press coverage. And from for whatever reason, decides to test Stingley. Bad idea. He loved, though, as we know, the, the back shoulder stuff on the sideline. That was the go-to route for Fromm. So Fromm drops back, and he throws this ball from the 48-yard line to the 15. It's a 33-yard pass. And Stingley turns his hips at the 20-yard line, and he squares his shoulders, and he makes the interception. I've never really understood the whole, like, oh, you know, this guy's got really loose hips, whatever, when draft talk gets into all that. I have never understood that more than watching that individual play. It is stunning to watch the quickness that we see from Stingley in real time. You cannot teach that stuff. You can preach it all you want. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Stingley has it. There are NFL guys who cannot do what Stingley did on that play. And here he is out here doing it in the SEC Championship as an 18-year-old kid, and he's taking over. That ability to do those things, it's still there for Stingley. And that's why he's essentially getting a redo in 2021. We're a year and a half removed from seeing stuff like that. Pro Football Focus, they did their early top cornerbacks returning in college football for this season. And Stingley's number one. I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that at all. When I put together my best defensive players in the SEC, Stingley's going to have a hard time not being number one. He's going to be up there. And if he's not number one, he's certainly going to be in the top two, top three. LSU, of course, this past week gave him the honor of wearing number seven. I would have asked questions if they didn't. So it's kind of one of those scenarios as well. And they've, they've kind of run into that in the past a little bit. But I always find it interesting kind of when they make that announcement too. I went back and they sometimes they'll announce it in September. Sometimes they'll announce it in March. And it seems like they're trying to get ahead of some of this stuff as well. Just to say, hey, he's still our guy. We don't want to make this seem like we didn't develop him, even though we put him in some really crappy spots in 2020. Stingley deserves a pass for the mess that was 2020. And he's going to get it. A pass isn't saying that he played at an All-America level last year because he didn't. 
a pass is acknowledging that he didn't handle the circumstances inside of his control as best he could, and there were some factors outside of his control that he, he really didn't handle as best he could. If there was personal stuff on top of all the confusion with Polini, I have to imagine that this was so challenging. So challenging. Especially when every time you take a wrong step, it's watch this receiver totally cook Derek Stingley and that's probably gonna go viral. I was thinking about how rare it is that we see a true transcendent talent in the SEC as a true freshman that then lives up to the hype as a sophomore. Julio, Omari, they, they both kind of did that where they took that step back as sophomores and then they bounced back in their pre-draft years. Different position, obviously, but Stingley could be like that. That's maybe a better modern era comp for Stingley and handling some of that success. A 20th century example, and note, this is not an exact comp by any means, but there are some parallels here. Herschel. Stingley obviously played for a more talented team, of course, more talent around him, not saying anything like that. I know Herschel was a revelation, but both are considered the best players on their side of the ball from the jump, and they lead football craze programs to national titles as true freshmen. I remember talking to Vince Dooley and some of Herschel's old teammates for the story I did a few years ago on why my generation, who, you know, we weren't alive to see Herschel, why we need to still acknowledge him as the GOAT. And Dooley... Some of the stuff that he said was just amazing to think about, where he assigned two patrolmen around Herschel at all times after his true freshman season. And some of his old teammates are like, Herschel after that year, I mean, he's Elvis. He, the guy can't go anywhere. And I imagine that Stingley doesn't go anywhere anymore in the state of Louisiana without getting swarmed and without getting recognized. And it's not the same sort of revelation that Herschel was but Stingley is also on national TV all the time. There's also the social media element that, that goes with it as well. I'm not sure if there was some Instagram thing, but he like deleted a ton of stuff off his Instagram as well. It's just a lot for a 19-year-old kid to deal with. I'm actually rereading A Season on the Brink right now. That's the book that followed Bob Knight around in 1985. There was an ESPN movie on it back in the day as well, Indiana basketball. Steve Alford had this unreal freshman year. And in Indiana, that's just... That, that gets magnified in a different sort of way, much like Herschel at Georgia and the way that you just kind of become a star and you're all of a sudden you're just everywhere all the time. And then after that, Steve Alford plays for the U.S. national team. That was back in the day when it was just college kids. You know, and, and they have this, this unbelievable run in the Olympics. They win a gold medal. On top of that, he had already beaten Michael Jordan in the NCAA tournament. And it's like, oh, then the guy's just supposed to come back to school and he's a sophomore and he's 19 years old. And what did he do as a sophomore? He regressed. He didn't want to trust the coaching. And he was just in his head about everything. And the entire sophomore year, as this book talks about, he was a step late. Listening to Bob Knight, a little bit different than listening to Bo Pelini. Got to imagine, although Bo Pelini probably thinks he's Bob Knight at certain points. Fortunately for Stingley, though, Pelini's gone. Durante Jones has done nothing but coach defensive backs. And I think he's going to speak their language a little bit differently than Pelini did. Will, do you remember last year where there was this clip of, and it was, I think SEC Network caught it, where Pelini's just blowing up on the sideline against Arkansas. He's just yelling at defensive players on the bench. I don't remember who it was on LSU, but he's just looking at, this player's just looking at Pelini like, sure, guy, we totally <laughs> believe you. Yeah. Clearly, keep, this is Keep yelling at us. Yeah. Yeah, right. Mm, for sure. I don't know that Durante Jones is going to be 
Dave Aranda 2.0. But I, I just hope that if nothing else, we see the best version of Stingley in 2021. I want to see the guy that forced you to notice him. I want to see the guy who made me rethink what a true freshman was capable of in the SEC, at least on the defensive side. I want to see the guy who was on his way to becoming an all-time great, and those questions were legitimately worth asking. Stingley, like so many people in 2020, could just sort of chalk it up as a lost year. It sure would be fun, though, if we could see him find it in 2021. Will, any thoughts on Stingley and just kind of bouncing back from this this strange year that was just kind of off from the jump? Well, I'll start that with a question. Connor, have you ever watched the show Community? Everybody says I need to be watching Community because I love Parks and Rec and I love The Office and I just have never been able to sit down and watch that or 30 Rock. So once you watch the show, this will make sense. His 2020 was like playing a bit part in the show community. You know, some episodes, the whole campus is a blanket fort. Some episodes, it's a Nerf war, you know, but if you come in and out of that, you have no idea what to expect. It's an absolute dumpster fire. So I'd say that the guy couldn't find a rhythm. Like you said, he was injured, but at the end of the day, there's no reason to make excuses for him, you know? And I'll tell you right now, this is a guy that I'm biased about. There have been a history of recruits in the SEC that I've been pumped up to play. Talk about Marcus Lattimore, Michael Dyer, Jadavion Clowney, and Stingley was right there. He was, other than Leonard Fournette, probably the LSU recruit I've been the most excited about in my life. And after a year, it looked like all that excitement and more was, you know, warranted. Me and my friend called him a Leviathan. It was like he walked out of a um, swamp and just started taking souls. <laughs> and <laughs> I'll say this about him, though. You know, Kobe had this quote in one of his commercials, you know, on the around the time that he's getting inducted in the Basketball Hall of Fame. It's great to bring up. Um, he said, people don't hate good players. They hate great players. And if anyone has any doubts about Derek Stingley's abilities, click on a PFF tweet that mentions him. And under that tweet, you're going to see about 20 people talking about Devontae Smith. Okay? That's how you know this guy's talented. Because at the end it's of true. the day, they wouldn't care if this guy was ass. <laughs> okay? They wouldn't care if this guy was some regular cornerback. But you and I know, we've seen this guy play and make plays that we've never seen before. You know, you, you know, after we got off our show the other day, you were talking about a play he made against Auburn. I said, oh, you mean when he ripped the ball from the guy in 2020? And you said, no, no, I mean the one in 2019 where he had this textbook pick. You look at the Georgia game in 2019. He has insane, I mean, you could argue that there hasn't been a defensive back that's a playmaker like that at LSU since Tyran Matthew. And LSU, you know, I like some of the Jamal Adams songs. He, th this guy's better than him. You know what I'm saying? In a different way. So, so at the way, end of absolutely. the day, you talked about the difference in eras, okay? Guess what? We don't have lockdown corners anymore in football. You know, the days of guys like Darrell Rivas are gone. You can't just stick a guy out there and erase half of the field because we've seen it. You can scheme guys open in this day and age. And so, yeah, he's going to have some mistakes. But at the end of the day, the thing that makes me so bullish on him is I've seen his ability. And at the end, of, you know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, you would rather have a guy that maybe he'll guess wrong. Maybe he'll trust himself a little bit too much. Maybe he'll get burned here and there. But he'll make it back up. You know, in that Auburn game in 2019 is a great example. Fumbled a punt and just came right back, got the game back for LSU. And so I think that when you look as far as an NFL draft prospect, it, it's a no-brainer to me because I can see what his top is, 
And, you know, that's why I always talk about I love J.C. Horn. J.C. Horn is a dude that just gets after the ball. And that's so hard to find today because so many guys are scared of contact. So many guys are scared of making a mistake. And I'll tell you about Derek Stingley. He's not scared of making a mistake. He walked into a national championship defense and was a unanimous All-American as a DB. That's not something that just happens. You know what I'm saying? So at the end of the day, you know, people can say whatever they want about him, but he's a guy that if you like football, you should probably like Derek Stingley because he's not going to be boring. He's going to, maybe he'll give up a catch, but he'll hit you. He'll try to get LSU back in the game. And I think that's the kind of stuff when you talk about Ricks is oddly kind of the same way. So, you know, not guaranteeing anything on the field, not guaranteeing any awards, but as we've discussed, you and I, if given several millions of dollars, could have coached those two players specifically. One would think. Better than Bo Pelini. I'm not ready to talk about linebackers, A-gap, B-gap, pressures, anything like that. Just give me Eli Ricks and Derek Stingley and we would find a way. So yeah, I think that, you know, like you said, last year was stressful for everybody. Let's just write that one off. But at the end of the day, it would take something catastrophic for me to root against and, and sell my Derek Stingley stock. Amen. Hold on to that stock. I think everybody's bullish about what he can do in 2021. A redo season for Derek Stingley. All right, let's kick it to my interview with Shane Beamer. Um, again, like I said, could have gone for two hours with him. Uh, just some really, really fun stuff that we got into. And there will be time to be able to discuss some different things with him, some on-field stuff with South Carolina. But just being able to kind of get to know him um, was just such a great, great experience. So let's go to my interview with South Carolina coach Shane Beamer. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest, a first-time guest, in fact. It is South Carolina coach Shane Beamer. Shane, I, I got to level with you. When I first saw that clip of you getting stopped for a picture at the South Carolina baseball game, I, I tweeted something that I thought was complimentary, but I hope it didn't really come off in that wrong way. It, it was basically Shane Beamer is totally the guy who's getting recognized and stopped in public for the first time in his life. But I added that I loved how you were handling all of it. Was that a fair assessment? And if so, how has that adjustment been for you so far? No, very much so, and I appreciate you having me on, and hopefully the first of many. Um, no, I, I saw the tweet, and, and um, I thought a lot of the tweet and didn't think anything negative of it, but appreciate you saying that. But no, I think so. It's, uh, it's, uh, I, I enjoy that part of it. Uh, we've got an amazing fan base here at Carolina, uh, as you know, and, and so thankful that I get the opportunity to represent this football program as the head coach and be out in public and, and be around uh, so many of those people, and it was a good experience for me growing up the the son of a legendary football coach as well in a small college town, and just seeing how my dad uh, handled that and, and and handled that part of the job. Because when you know when you're the a head football coach in the SEC, that's a big part of it, and uh, I knew that going into it, and I've certainly enjoyed uh, enjoyed that part of it as well. We haven't uh, we haven't played any games yet, so everything is positive right now. So I'm definitely uh, embracing everything. That's a man who understands the process of being a big-time college football coach. Uh, you getting that job at South Carolina, it, it sort of followed a, a similar path to that where, you know, I, I think when all these names first started coming out about the, the search, you weren't necessarily at the very top of that list in terms of the obvious candidates, but then 
a week into the process, it was so overwhelmingly obvious that you were going to get this job. Explain to those who are listening to this, who have probably applied for jobs before or, so, or something like that, and maybe not been the obvious choice in their respective fields, how one goes like from all of a sudden being this kind of like obvious choice, because I imagine you just crushed the interview process. I hope so. Uh, I feel like it went really well. Um, it's a great question. I mean, I certainly, when the job came open, you you know, I felt like I'd have an opportunity uh, to get it, but there were certainly, this is a great job. I mean, it's an SEC job. There's there's only a handful of these in the entire world, and then you're talking about the, the best conference in college football, and to be a head coach at this in this conference is very, very special, and a lot of coaches across the country knew that and felt the same way uh, that, that I did, but, you know, I knew that I'd have an opportunity to potentially sit down uh with coach tanner and, and our administration and the decision makers and and uh you know this is someone i tried to when i when i left this job back in 2011 tried to keep in touch with people because this was a special place to my family and i when we were here and i always dreamed of coming back here and that wasn't just you know press conference talk that was the truth and uh you know it, it was pretty cool during that process of the amount of former players that spoke up on my behalf. And it wasn't like I was calling up uh, Marcus Lattimore and saying, hey, Marcus, do you mind tweeting something out, you know, to help me get this job? A lot of it, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I talked to a lot of those guys, but a lot of it was guys that I hadn't even talked to much since I left, whether it be a DJ Swearinger or a Melvin Ingram, you know, guys that I kept in touch with a little bit, but not a ton that were just, you know, speaking out on their own. And, uh uh, and I think as time went on and as the process went on, I think a lot of people realized, you know what, this hire maybe makes a lot of sense. This is a guy that's passionate about South Carolina and was born in Charleston and, and wants this job uh, badly, and I did. And, and certainly the interview process is key. you got to you know, be able to be competent in that part of it. And I did a phone interview uh, early on, probably three days after Coach Muschamp was let go. I did a phone interview with Coach Tanner, our athletic director, obviously, and Chance Miller, our deputy athletic director. And and I'll be honest, I remember doing that interview on the phone and talking to them for over an hour and uh, and getting off the phone and calling my wife and saying, you know what, I, I think I've got a great opportunity to get this thing based on just the, the way I felt after that interview. And uh, and then we met in person uh at another time, and and that was a you know five six hour interview where it was very I don't want to say easy, but it was very seamless, and and we had really good conversations. So as time went on, I felt better and better about it. But until that job is offered, you never uh, totally relax or feel good because as you know, I mean, I tried to stay off social media and stay off as much things as many things as I could. Plus I was as busy coaching a team in Oklahoma, but you hear different things and there's all kinds of different rumors about this coach and that coach. So it was certainly a stressful time, but thankful that it worked out the way it did in the end. So one of those former players, Steven Garcia, he told me during that process that you kept the 843 area code from your days back on Spurrier's staff. You can come clean on that, though. Did you just not want to get a new phone number, or was that your way of saying that your card always belonged in South Carolina? Uh, so here's so honestly, when I was here before, I had an I had an 803 area code for Columbia, and um, honest story, I was in. I was coaching at Georgia, and you know when you're when you're in college coaching, 
typically the university is going to issue a cell phone to you when you get the job. So uh, I, I was a graduate assistant at Tennessee. I went to Mississippi State as an assistant coach. They gave me a 662 area code. Well, then I leave Mississippi State and come to South Carolina. I got rid of the 662 number, and I got uh, an 803 number. Then I leave South Carolina to go to Virginia Tech. I got to get rid of the 803 number and get a 540 number. Then I left Virginia Tech and went to Georgia, got rid of 504 and got a 706. And at that point, I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of like having to like send out my cell phone number to all these different people every time I take a job. So I, uh, um, it kind of goes back to South Carolina. I was actually coaching at Georgia. I'll never forget this. I was in Charleston, and uh, I was at DeCarion Joiner, our, our uh, wide receivers high school. It's on our team currently at South Carolina. I was at right. Georgia, and we had gone in there because we liked DK coming out of high school, thought he had a chance to be a really good quarterback. So I was over at Fort, Dorchester, Fort Dorchester High School, went and saw DK, had some time before my flight, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to get a phone that I can always keep where no matter where I'm coaching, I don't have to like constantly just give this number out to people. I can just always keep it, and that's my number. So I went in the store, and I was in Charleston, which is an 843 area anyway, and the guy's like, you can get area, any area code you want. And I'm like, I want an 843. One, I love South Carolina. Two, my family and I, you know, I was born in Charleston. Three, I would love to come back and coach in this state at some point. And four, whenever my coaching days are over, I'd love to just retire uh, in this state somewhere near the coast, hopefully, down in Charleston in that area. So got the 843, and that was in 2016, I guess, is when I got that. And then I will always keep it. So, yeah, part of it was getting rid of the nuisance of picking up a new phone, but a lot of it was this is this is somewhere that I – Always wanted to end up, so I said maybe if I get this eight four three area code, that'll help the process and and uh, even be be even more meant to be. I'd, I'd ask you for a Garcia story, but I know that none of those are safe to share on our airwaves. So I'll instead ask for <laughs> a Spurrier story. I imagine because of the fact that he and your dad sort of had their rise at similar times, that you had met him before you went to South Carolina. Is is there a story from maybe the hiring process with him, or maybe your first day there that stands out? Yeah, he was somebody that I always admired growing up. You know, everybody watched the Florida Gators and what he was doing with Danny Werfel and all those guys back in the day. And somebody that I admired, he coached in the NFL, obviously up in Washington, and I had grown up in Virginia, so had that connection. But really, I think the only time I met him was – uh, the year that Michael Vick was a finalist for the Heisman Trophy, I went up there with my dad for the uh, for the Heisman weekend, and I had, that was the first time I ever met Coach Spurrier. And then I think I went when he was coaching in Washington. I went to one of his practices and, and met him, and, and but never had spent much time with him. So he offered me the job over here on a, like a Thursday and gave me the weekend to think about it and thought about it. My wife and I came over here, looked around, took the job, and he was always a big, still is probably a big Bud Foster fan. My dad's a longtime defensive coordinator at Virginia Tech. Uh, so my very first day here, I fly over, I get picked up. He's in a meeting when I get here. Uh, I wait for him to get out of the meeting. He comes out, glad you're here. Welcome to Columbia. How was the flight? Come on, let's go in here to the defensive staff room. And I'd co been coaching at Mississippi State. I had never coached a day in my life at Virginia Tech. And um, he comes out, he's like, well, let's go in the defensive staff room and let's talk a little ball. And Tyrone Nix was our defensive coordinator. And then the defensive staff was there, Brad Lawing, Ron Cooper, myself at the time. And, and uh, we go in the defensive staff room, and here I'm thinking he's going to want to talk about, you know, what they do here at South Carolina or what we have been 
doing at Mississippi State. But he takes me in the defensive staff room, first time meeting the rest of the defensive staff. He's like, all right, get up on the board and draw up everything that Bud Foster does on defense. <laughs> I'm like, well, um, well, I was like, Coach, I've never really worked at Virginia Tech. I mean, I was there as a player, and, and uh, I know a little bit, but I'm not sure how much I can tell you. But that was a little bit, huh. And, uh, but it, was, it goes to show the respect he had for Bud Foster and was interested in hiring him a couple times uh, at Florida and South Carolina both. But that one kind of took me, took me uh, by surprise a little bit. But it was a fantastic four years here. I've got probably hundreds of stories I can tell you in my time of working for him. He was definitely entertaining. He and his wife, Jerry, are awesome and were great to my family and I while we were here. And it was certainly great for me to learn from him and see why he won so many championships at Florida and, and just seeing a different way of doing things after being with Sylvester Croom and Philip Fulmer and my dad and, and George O'Leary uh, up to that point. It was a great experience for me being here with that. And we'll definitely uh, have another time for Steven Garcia stories as well. There's definitely some good ones from, <laughs> from that time period also we could talk about with him. <laughs> I've I've heard those. We'll save we'll save some of those for off air sometime. Um, yeah. You know, you talk about getting to work under those coaches, and it's incredible with Spurrier and Fulmer and Kroom, Smart, Lincoln Riley. I mean, your dad obviously, like all of these incredible coaches, and you know, you spent all this time on you know both sides of the ball, and you got to see all these incredible games: 2017 Rose Bowl, 2017 National Championship, uh, 2010 Bama South Carolina, 2014 Virginia Tech Ohio State, which is kind of an underrated game because. Ohio State still goes on in the national championship. But besides having a front row seat to all of that, I think I'm most jealous of the fact that you got to spend two years getting a front row seat to the experience of Michael Vick. Can you just tell the kids about Michael Vick? Unbelievable. Um, unbelievable. I mean, he, he, you know, I go back and you remember this. Like, Ronald Curry was the guy, like, was the guy if you remember him coming out of high school. And everybody in the country wanted Ronald Curry. And I'll never forget, you know, Ronald Curry had been pretty adamant that he was either going to Virginia or North Carolina. Like, he wasn't coming to Virginia Tech. And I remember my dad telling me when Mike was in high school, he's like, you know, we're not going to get Ronald Curry. He's not coming to Virginia Tech. But there's another quarterback there that's in in Newport News uh, by the name of Michael Vick that we think's going to be even better than Ronald Curry and I'm like yeah well, right whatever you're just saying that because you know that Ronald Curry's <laughs> not coming to Virginia Tech and and then he comes there and you see how talented he is and, and what people don't remember was Mike's freshman year was 1998 and in 1998 Virginia Tech lost three games we blew a 28 to 7 lead or 29 to 7 something like that to Virginia at home and lost we lost on the last play of the game to Temple in an upset, and we lost on the last play of the game to their, uh, Donovan McNabb and Syracuse through a touchdown pass on the last play of the game. Those were the only three losses we had in 98. Ended up beating Alabama in the Music City Bowl like 31-7 to or something like that. Had a really good team. Well, that team, starting quarterback got hurt, backup quarterback got hurt. The third-team quarterback ended up starting some games that year, and Mike was on the team, but my dad and the coaching staff had made a promise to his high school coach that they would redshirt 
Michael Vick. So we're down to the third-team quarterback, Nick Sorensen, who's coaching in the NFL right now. Nick was our starting free safety and also played quarterback for us that year because we had promised Mike's coach we would redshirt him. Now, today's time, that would never happen because all these guys nowadays, they want to come in and play as true freshmen. But we lost three games with Michael Vick staying on the sidelines. Um, but just so so talented. You saw it in practice obviously, but you know how it is at a college practice. A lot of times those quarterbacks, they aren't getting tackled, and and you really don't get a a true sense for what they can do. But then the first game of the 99 season, we played James Madison, and, I mean, it was like, oh, my gosh, just because you could see the – you saw the way he ran, the way that he could just flick that wrist and throw the football. It was a great experience just watching him. Um, those that that 1998 when he redshirted 99 uh, when we went to the national championship and and I mean that's the only national championship game I can remember where Florida State won the national championship but all anybody was talking about the next day was the quarterback for the losing team because yep. that was like his coming out party and uh, uh, special talent and and even <clears throat> even now I mean the 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 way that his name still resonates with so many uh, quarterbacks at the college level. I mean, he's like the guy. Uh, I was at Oklahoma with Kyler Murray, and and uh, Mike reached out to me one day during Kyler's season wanting to like connect with Kyler Murray and talk to him because he loved the way that he played. And when I told Kyler that, I mean, the way that his eyes lit up, that Michael Vick was interested in talking to him and loved the way that he played was pretty cool to see and just goes to show the amount of respect that quarterbacks still to this day have for Michael Vick and what he accomplished as a player. As a, a former college long snapper, I, I, I could talk Michael Vick with you all day. We'll, well, we'll save that and the Steven Garcia stories for, for another time <laughs> here. But, you know, as a former college long snapper, if I wanted to teach my future son or daughter how to long snap, just hypothetically speaking, would that be a wise thing to have them doing pretty much like as soon as they can walk or should I hold off on that? I think yes. First time I've ever been asked that question. I like that. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think I would hold off on it. I don't think you want to train your son or daughter to, you know, to snap from day one. To me, it's something that's, you know, if they're a decent enough athlete and they can throw, they can throw the football halfway decent. I mean, they ought to be able to snap a little bit. Um, I mean, I still okay. remember I was in probably sixth grade, seventh grade, and was out in the yard throwing the football with my dad. And he's like, let's snap a little bit. And I never snapped, and I snapped some. He's like, you know, you're actually pretty good at it. You ought to, you know, keep working at that because that's a way he, he was he was able to keep it real with me at a young age. He's like, look, if you want to play football at the highest level at the at the Division One level, you're gonna have a hard time doing that um, at wide receiver or quarterback or defensive back, which is what I was playing. But he's like, if you can snap, that's a way for you to get on the field at least so you ought to keep working at it so that's the way that I did it and did some played some receiver in college also because I knew I wanted to get into coaching and I didn't just want to snap and only snap uh so I wanted to do some different things but it definitely allowed me the opportunity to get on the field but no I think it's something that hopefully can come somewhat naturally and and uh just kind of work on it as they grow up good question though I like that <laughs> 
Appreciate that. Uh, you've got yeah. some <laughs> incredible women in, in your life, and you've got your wife, Emily, and your mom, Cheryl. Um, I, I was putting together a Mother's Day story on Saturday Down South when I came across these incredible details about your mom. Besides raising you and your sister while your dad's job obviously demanded so much time, I, I saw how she supported your athletic career, drove you all over Virginia, and she supported your desire to follow in your dad's footsteps to become a coach. I also saw that within five minutes of every game you coach in, there was a call waiting from your mom. Um, so my question is, now that you've got the big time Power Five head coaching gig, you've got more media responsibilities and all that, are we gonna continue that tradition or is mom gonna be at every game now and you won't have to? I would think that uh, we'll continue that tradition because uh, she's probably going to be uh, uh, probably going to be at every single home game, so she'll be able to see me right after the game. But you know, away games—I'm sure they won't get to that many away games, and I can definitely still count on uh, that phone call for sure. But yeah, uh, no matter what time it would, no matter what time that game would end, half a lot of the times my dad would be half asleep probably by halftime if we, if we were playing a <laughs> night game. But I could always count on her to stay up, and no matter what time that thing ended, um, uh, I would have a, a, a voicemail from her. I mean, we were in Oklahoma. We played out in, at, out at Baylor a couple years ago, and that was that night game that we were down 28-3 to or whatever that probably ended after midnight on the East Coast. But as soon as yeah. I came in the locker room, I, I'd have a voicemail from her, and then she'd be going to bed. So I don't think she's going to stop that uh, anytime soon. I love it. I love it. I want to get you out of here on five rapid fire questions. Can just be the first thing that comes to mind. Does that sound good? I like it. Awesome. Why is South Carolina the real USC? Uh, University of South Carolina is the uh, best state in the country, and, and uh, we're the flagship university for this state. Easy as that. Um, is there a hotter place on earth than Columbia, South Carolina? No. On a scale of but, one to ten, but to ten. it's uh, it's great weather year round for sure. So if you it's it's hot everywhere in the south, it's definitely steamy in Columbia. Uh, but you also got to realize what you get 365 days a year, which is pretty fantastic as well. So I'll I'll trade any heat in the summer for uh, some of the things I've dealt with at other places: cold and wind and <laughs> tornadoes and everything else. Yep, you're not wrong about that. On a scale of one to 10, with 10 being like, hey, they're setting the couches on fire in the streets, how crazy was Columbia after 2010 against Bama? I would say, just from hearing stories and things like that, I would say eight. I don't think we were doing anything too crazy. Now, uh, that game ended and, and uh, you know, I got in the car and probably drove back to my home with my, you know, two uh, uh, two young children. So I wasn't doing anything crazy on that Saturday night. That I, that was an amazing atmosphere in Williams-Brice. And I'm sure in uh, five points and across Columbia that night, it was even crazier. Yep. Um, I'll, I'll ask Garcia about that one. I'll, I'll get after him about that. I'm sure he's got a full story. Uh, how much How much do you laugh every time you see the meme of your dad celebrating the scoreless end to regulation in that game against Wake Forest back in 2014? <laughs> I'm like, every time I see it, I'm like, come on, man. Like, can we just move on? Uh, Andy Staples loves using that one. I've seen him use that one all the time as well with uh, on, on Twitter. But... I laugh because there's that one, and then there's the one of him dancing in the locker room after the Virginia game. But the one yep. from the Wake Forest game, that's like universal because that's that gets used with literally like every sport, 
and sometimes outside of sports <laughs> as well, that one. So it's one of those, it is what it is. I get it, but every time I see it, I laugh, but then I shake my head. I'm like, man, at some point we can maybe move on or get a different, or get a, get something <laughs> new to use. <laughs> Last one I'll get you out of here on. Uh, are you physically able to say the word Clemson yet, or is it still just that program in the upstate? Uh, I could say it, um, you know, and have great respect for them and what they've accomplished and and uh, uh, whatnot. But I think it's a great rivalry, and certainly have respect for them. But you know, uh, I've had some I've had some Carolina fans tell me that they love the fact that I uh, haven't you know said that yet. But it's no no means of disrespect. It's it's a great rivalry that I'm very fortunate to be a part of and. And uh, we had some great success against them when I was here, and and certainly they've had a great run here against us recently. And we need to we need to work every day to uh, turn the tables and, and flip this thing back and and and, uh, and and get some wins against those guys. Shane, really appreciate the time. This has been awesome. Uh, best of luck with everything this year, and I'm sure we'll do this again soon. Absolutely, anytime. Just let me know and and uh, keep up the great work. Enjoy following you, and if I can ever do anything, let me know. Appreciate that. Take care. Yep, you bet. Thanks. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. Subject for figuring out today, talking promotions slash raises. So if you are an adult in the workforce, which I would assume many people listening to this are, You've probably had that moment where you thought, I need to ask for a promotion, I need to ask for a raise, and if I cannot do that, do I need to consider other options? So, Will, this is something that in the journalism world is very, very different than what you would typically experience if you're in corporate America, something like that. I reached out actually to a couple of my buddies who are in the corporate world because they have better perspective on that than I do. Whereas like, I'm just the lowly journalist who like, I remember my, my job in Nebraska where you're like, hey, would I be able to like get this much an hour? And I don't even wanna give you the number because it would just depress you and it would make you realize how bad it is to try and make a, a living going that route and how hard that is. But it's weird because in journalism, there are only a certain amount of things that you can really point to. You could say like, hey, I've done X, Y, and Z for a certain amount of time, but very often times, and if you're working in the newspaper business, they're cutting back. And it's the exact opposite place where you can ask for a raise. And I remember, you know, I, I talked to my brother about this so many different times because he, you know, also had that newspaper um, upbringing with his career and worked for two different newspapers. And having that discussion with his bosses, it often came away with like, oh crap, man, that really, you know, they didn't, they gave me an offer back, but it's basically like, hey, this is gonna cover inflation. And in this field, it is so rare and so difficult to get raises that I think a lot of people with this background are pretty unfamiliar in that territory. So you have just a, a different sort of like post-college um, post-college professional background with asking for raises and whatnot. What have you found to be the best strategy to be able to approach your bosses? Or maybe you've been in situations where you haven't had to approach your bosses and they instead approach you and say, we want to give you a raise. Yeah, so obviously, you know, 
we both work for SDS, so we're not really talking about that. Um, that would be, what's the word, uncouth. Um, but I would say <laughs> I will only speak on other people's, other people's experience because, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's unbecoming of professional Fair enough. young Fair enough. men like we are. But uh, I guess we're just regular men That's now. a good tip in itself. Don't, don't talk about your yeah. own raises. Don't talk about, yeah. yeah, never tell anyone your salary because that's how you get your <laughs> feeling. Or someone's coming out with their feelings hurt. You know what I'm saying? Either way, you don't like it. But, yeah, I mean, I, I would always say, you know, I love the place that I'm at right now because they always price our stuff competitively. Um, we're in entertainment, which I saw a world of difference going from journalism to entertainment. And I think that w one of the you know best pieces of advice I've seen is, you know, you always work for you, like Y-O-U LLC. So it's, okay, well, what am I doing that's helping this company, number one? What can I ascribe my value? What are my things that if I were to leave, you know, that would that would no longer be served. And then at the same time, it's what would I provide to another company or how would someone else, you know, use my skills? So I don't know, let's say Connor, let's say you're a really good painter, right? Or let's say you're John Elway and you are a football player and a baseball player. Well, you know, you could always go to another company and say, okay, I'll just go be a painter. You know what I'm saying? Like your non-competes don't affect me. I'm going to go do this. And so it's all about, you know, getting yourself in a position to where your skill set is being displayed and where you're not put, being put into a box that doesn't fit. And for me, I've been very lucky with where I'm at right now. They've given me a chance to really have a voice and that's really all you can ask for, especially at, you know, not a super high level. So yeah, I, I think that overall, you always just gotta say, you know, Rosillo had a great quote, Kirk Cousins got paid not because he was the best quarterback, because he was the quarterback with the best leverage. So you too can be Kirk Cousins. What inspirational words to anybody listening to this. You too can be Kirk Cousins. If you take away nothing from this podcast, <laughs> take away that. What sort of value that you provide in your workplace goes beyond just doing X, Y, and Z. This is what your boss has laid out for you to be able to accomplish on a daily basis. To me, if you're going about asking for a raise or a promotion, you have to show how you've elevated your position the things that you can point to and say, this wasn't just what you asked of me. This is how I took this to a different level. This is how I provided you value with what I did. And that applies to anyone. That's not just an editorial thing. If anything, it's probably more non-editorial because that's a little bit tougher to look at in this specific field. But there are certain things that I think people deal with when it comes to that subject that they don't really know how to approach. If you have a non-compete that's in play, and if you, your employer knows you can't go anywhere else in this field, yeah, you can be a great painter and you could also be a football slash baseball player like John Elway, but if you have that hanging over you, how then do you have any sort of leverage if you've already agreed to a non-compete? But I still think it's just about value. And it's just about showing that, hey, if I bring X, Y, and Z to the table and show you the things that I have done that have been different than the person who did it before me, or would be different of what you would ask the person to do after me, or if now you expect the person after me to do something like that as well, then that to me shows your value and it shows even if you have that non-compete hanging over you, you still provide value and you would still be in that position to where you could ask for a raise. Now, the frequency of asking for a raise. Some people, depending on where you work, get that annual raise and part inflation, part 
maybe it's written into the contract initially. College football coaches know a thing or two about that. I always <laughs> love those deals. Or it gets bumped up a certain like 250 grand. Shout out to Sam Pittman who worked out a deal with Hunter Juracek to basically restart his contract because Hunter Juracek said to him, 2020 was kind of a throwaway year, man. I don't really want to put that against you in terms of your overall record. Let's just start your contract over and it's essentially a one-year extension. But I'm sure Sam Pittman was saying some of those things to him of, look what I was working up against in year one, and this wasn't normal, and everything that I'm gonna do henceforth is going to be under normal circumstances. Let's just start the contract over. Nobody has any sort of bad blood between each other, and they've been really public about all that stuff. I think that's one of the things that's cool with Hunter Juracek, who has been so good at negotiating these contracts, though I think Arkansas fans would have preferred Eric Musselman to get signed a little bit sooner to that extension, but it gets done, and it's, also such an underrated thing to have a boss who you can actually have that conversations with. If you like, Will, I don't know, like if you, if you have buddies who have gone into situations where they've asked their boss for a raise and they felt they've been justified and then they basically got the door slammed on them. Have you ever heard any horror stories like that? Yeah, that, that's never happened to me, but I, I've definitely heard of people, you know, like I said, it's, it's all about appreciating other perspectives at the end of the day. And it's like, you know, it, I've heard of people walking in there and giving X, Y, and Z reasons. Like, hey, man, we we don't have that right now, so I don't know what to tell you, bro. And it's like that's those are always the stories that are tough. Where it's uh, you know your boss agrees with you. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, tough, dude. I think if you sign a contract too, some of them can just point to that and say, well, hey, you're not up for for a raise until this amount of time mm-hmm. or or whatever the case. But again, reading the room is the most important thing. It is the single most important thing. It's reading the room with yourself. It's reading the room with your boss. There are probably ways in which you could ask your boss for a raise that are totally different than any other boss. Like working in in newspapers and and whatnot, I kind of learned that as long, and where I worked, I was fortunate enough to be in a situation where if I kept my head down and worked there, and if I did stuff that was beyond just the typical show up, do whatever game story I'm assigned to, and I show that I'm doing initiative to start new things and stuff like that, start new programs, then they're going to reward me for that. Now, not every place is like that. And sometimes you gotta point that out to your boss. Sometimes your boss isn't gonna be able to recognize that. But if you're doing those things, you're still probably going to be setting yourself up well. And then if you do get the door slammed on you, you could then turn around to another employer and say, hey, well, this is what I did at my previous place. And maybe that's your sign to look for a new place to be able to work. We took to, uh, I took, I wanted to reach out to my uh, couple of my buddies about this because some of my buddies who work in corporate America who have a different perspective on this. Uh, one of those being uh, Sarthak Sharma who um, had this great response. He said, if I have a defined increase in responsibility at work, I'm asking for that increase to be reflected in my title and or salary. If not, I'll just get a job somewhere else. It's a buyer's market out there. And then as only he could, uh, he, he showed us like his, he, he has like all of his jobs on Facebook. And he took a picture of what it looks like to go from this position to this position to this position. So this is someone who obviously knows how to go about that and has done a really good job of being able to approach his bosses and say the value that he brings to the table. But that's that's a, a good point to bring up because I think that a lot of times bosses will give you that increased responsibility and they'll just expect you to roll with it. When if you're being self-reflective and if you're handling this well, but you know it's causing you more time or you know you know more energy, whatever it is, 
that's a really good thing to be able to stand on. And if you can have those conversations if and when they happen, that's a win. Will, have you heard of situations where you've been in those spots or where people that you know have been in those spots where they've basically been told, oh, now all of a sudden you're gonna do this, this, and this. Okay, then pay me this, this, and this. Well, I'll say this, you know, off of his point, he has his like full LinkedIn bio up there, and that right there is the dream. If you can do exactly <laughs> what he did, literally start from the bottom and get to the top. And like I saw that and I went, wow, like bop, bop, bop. And and that that's the thing, and like that's a big part to me of growing up and figuring it out is that, you know, as Kawhi Leonard says, I'm a fun guy. And it's hard for people to take me seriously because I do crap like that. And and so, you know, as I started advancing in my career, it's like, hey, maybe I'm not this guy that started off on this level and maybe I can do all these different things, but it's all about changing. Um, and I'll give my current boss an amazing amount of credit for that. She started off with our company as an intern and she, you know, over time learned how to grow in the company and is now like an exec basically. And you know, she's, she's young and it's like, it's super cool to watch people figure that out, climb the ladder without having to go elsewhere. Because if you can't, you know what I'm saying? If, if you can't make people change their perception of you, if you're seen as the guy, the fun guy, the whatever guy that, you know, management won't see you as a, um, as a leader or as a person who can handle a management position, sometimes you have to go elsewhere. But like I said, the dream has always been exactly what that guy showed is that you can evolve with your role and your company can trust you and you can return that back to them and you just move all the way up. I'm such a bad example for this because I really haven't worked in a lot of these settings at all. But have you been in the workplace where you've recognized the person, guy or girl, who's just trying to climb the ladder and you know they're all about that promotion and every single thing that they do, it's promotion, it's raise, it's rise all the time and not in a genuine way, but in a way of I need to make sure that my accomplishments stand out and I'm gonna let you know about it constantly because that person, I you know, you've seen the, the corporate versions or whatever media TV versions of that, but I'm thankful that I, you know, working in, in the settings that I've had to work in in the past, I haven't had to deal with that at all. But I would think in corporate America, there's got to be a ton of that type of stuff that just gets sniffed out from a mile away. Oh, yeah. And, it's, and like I said, man, it's little things. It's how you present yourself. It's how people speak. And little things like that, I, like I said, I never prioritized. And because I was always the guy who thought, okay, well, if I just work hard, if I just do X, Y, and Z. And now I'm starting to realize, like, okay, well, yeah, maybe it's not the smartest idea to do eight different things. Maybe I should be really good at like two things and whenever I speak to people, mm. you know, come off as a professional. Make it seem like this is my whole life and I, you can trust me as opposed to just, oh, you know, I'm the guy who sends gifts and makes memes, you know? And so, yeah, I, I do think that like, I do think that overall, there it's such a fine line of, I want to make sure that these people notice me while at the same time not being seen as a tryhard. One of my buddies who I reached out to works for, works for a very big insurance company. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to bring them into this, but he said the biggest thing, and he deals with this a lot in his field in HR, numbers are the most important thing. Mm -hmm. If you can point to numbers that are undisputable, that's, that's going to be the case that 
you know, because so many of these people that are, are higher up, that's what they deal with. And to them, you can often be a number. And if you can, and especially in the editorial sense, probably as well, if you can point to things like in, in journalism, if you're able to point to page views and say, look, since I've been doing this, this is how much interaction I've been able to get. That's such a huge thing to have in your favor, but it's also comparing yourself to the person who was in your shoes in the past. And you can say, this is what I've done to be able to elevate. And these are the specific tangible things other than just the random buzzwords that people like to throw out. I think real um, quick, I think but, that college football coaching is such an interesting mirror of this because you know sometimes you have the guy who, you know, um, let's take Sean McVay, for instance, showed mm. everyone, okay, boom. I mean, he belongs there. As you know, as a Saints fan and all the Sean McVay jokes, that dude has shown over and over again that he puts up the numbers, he has the resume to explain his position in the world. Then there are lots of people, <clears throat> Chad Morris, that will be next to the guy. You know what I'm saying? They'll be, you know, you see the guy and you see a little bit of that aura coming off. A lot of Belichick assistants. Adam Gase. Adam Gase, exactly. And you know, he had the numbers. He had the greatest offense in NFL history with Peyton Manning. And it seemed like, oh, you know, and, I, and that's why I love the psychology, the, 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 you know, the numbers of coaching because you see guys, it's like, you know, Jeff Fisher, love Jeff Fisher, but you know, he had a brand. It was all about a brand with him. And, and you know, PJ Fleck, another great example. It was a brand. And sometimes you got to be able to sell yourself as a brand. You know, and sometimes you, like you said, sometimes it's easy as, hey, here's what I did, you know, read it and weep. But sometimes people will get promoted because they're so good at being the, uh, you know, the X guy. I'm the, this guy. I'm good at this. And they're so good at branding themselves that everybody sticks with that. I think though, to a certain extent, you need both of those things. Mm -hmm. You need the numbers and you need to be able to sell yourself because there are certain people who I kind of wonder, how is this person not at this level yet? Eric Bieniemy is the guy that keeps getting thrown around with the coaching names. Yep. What's Eric Bieniemy like in these interviews? I would love to know. I really would love to know because obviously everybody's talked. That's very well documented. Oh, you know, people don't just don't want to hire black coaches in the NFL. I'm not sitting here saying that they do or that they don't. But I would love to be able to see how is he selling himself differently than some of these people who have kind of surpassed him and gotten these jobs. And what has it been like to be able to sit down in a room with him and see him sell himself? Is he selling those right sort of numbers? Because sometimes you can have all that stuff working in your favor and it still isn't good enough. And so it is all about what you're able to do to sell yourself and to sell the value that you've been able to provide. And college football is such a fascinating microcosm for that. And whenever one of these one of these guys rises to these levels where I'm just like, oh, so they had that like one good year at Toledo. That's <laughs> that's that they're able to sell themselves on. Good for them. They got a power five gig. That that's cool. But they must have been really good in that interview because otherwise, I don't know. I don't know about that. And that was that was one of the things that we talked to, you know, if you listen to the Shane Beamer interview where I said like, look, you had to have crushed that interview because you go from the, the guy who's not being talked about as much to all of a sudden, oh, it's unanimous. Shane Bieber's going to be the guy at South Carolina before they even make the hire. Those people have an edge and they have an edge and they, they've been able to get to their, their levels of success by selling themselves well and by also having the numbers and whatever to be able to back it up. Great response from Candler. I reached out to him as well. Candler said, um, you know, he just did it this last year at his company and he spent time researching the tangible value of my contributions to the company over the last year and waited until a Friday 
early in the afternoon, smart, since people tend to be in the best mood at work on a Friday to ask for it, basically saying my contributions to the company have generated XYZ in revenue, which is a level uh, commensurate with at least a level above my current title, if not two levels, then say I believe that a title change would be my best way to reflect that to my contribution to the team would be you know a title increase, all that stuff. Uh, then I went silent because the next person to speak loses. Um, and he said, it was a fun experience and it worked. So if you're asking for promotion, do it on a Friday, man. Do it on a Friday. Read the room. That is so important with this stuff. If you're going into this not knowing where your boss's head is at, and for example, if you were the person who decided we're three weeks into the pandemic, now let me go ask for a promotion. Let me ask for a raise. Are you, are you reading the room or are you just reading your own situation? Because yeah, you might need it, but you also are probably not recognizing that your company and pretty much every company everywhere is making cutbacks galore. Unless you're working for like a, a mask distribution company or something like that. You're like, I'm working 20 hours a day, something like that. A little bit different, but time and place, know the atmosphere, do it on a Friday. Do it on a Friday. Great advice, Candler. Great advice. Thank you to um, Shane Beamer again. Was grateful. Was very grateful that we got to, to be able to set that up and got that time with him. Know that he's a very busy guy. Great golf swing as well these days. Um, a lot of people made mention of that on social media. Hopefully, going to be able to have a couple more SEC head coaches on in the near future. Got a couple of things potentially in the works. I think next week. I think will I'm gonna do my way too early playoff predictions. Let's go. I've, already, I've got the four teams. I've got the four teams sitting in my notebook right here, right now, ready to go. Which SEC so team we'll is gonna blow out that. Oklahoma this year? We have to know. <laughs> I've done a lot of Oklahoma research in the last week or so, and went on fine bomb and talked about Oklahoma uh, a decent amount actually as well. Uh, shameless plug: go SaturdayDownSouth.com, read some stuff about Oklahoma against the SEC potential different formula this year that they're following. Um, so yes, if you're not subscribed to all things Saturday Down South, you should be. Go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday Down Football. Go subscribe to our newest podcast with Marler, Tyler Huck, College Football Uncensored, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you are going to the SaturdayDownSouth.com homepage and just refreshing it constantly because chances are you probably just wait a half hour and there's new piece of content that you haven't you haven't read yet. If you're not big into social media, do all of those things. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name read on air with figuring it out. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.